you know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Alric Russell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker. And my first feature film, The Alternate, which is being featured online right now by Cinequest as one of their Cinejoy Spotlights events. It's happening this Thursday, November 11th at 5.30 p.m. Pacific time. So if you, I think you can watch it right now, but if you want to watch it with me and the crew, and I don't think it's the crew, it's me and the cast. <laughs> if you want to watch it with us, that's happening 11, 11, 5.30 p.m. And then the Q&A is at 7.45. So if you just want to be there for the Q&A, you can comment that time too. Anyways, check it out. I'm Liz Manischel. I'm a writer, director, producer who has made two features, currently in development on about five more. I'm a distribution consultant who used to manage Sundance's creative distribution initiative. This week, we welcome the Film Festival Alliance to talk about what the Film Festival Alliance is, how it got started, and how they partner with film festivals and what, and basically what they do. I, I was not aware of them as a group at all. And then I looked at their website and I saw all the film festivals that are part of this alliance and I was like blown away. A lot of them I, I played this year. Well, not a lot, two, but still, it's pretty cool. <laughs> So looking through that list, I saw a ton of awesome festivals a part of this, including Heartland International, which I just played, Woodstock, which Liz loves and I didn't get into, shaking my fist, <laughs> and of course, some big, big cats like Sundance and South by Southwest, but also hundreds of other film festivals, big and small. So a lot of people are part of this thing. We also talk about a news article from The Hollywood Reporter out of this year's virtual AFM about the streaming wars and how COVID will put indie film medals to the test. But before we get into all of that, Liz, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I have watched the cut of my short film twice now. And I have to say, after the first cut, I was very uncomfortable and unhappy. And I talked to Sean about it. And Sean was like, you're supposed to vomit after watching the first cut. You're never supposed to be happy. And I was like, OK, well, I'm right on track then. And then, I, you know, time has passed and I'm letting go of a few things and I'm appreciating a lot of the work of, of the amazing crew. So I'm doing well, but I think I'm also in that like weird gray space of like, we talked about this a few weeks ago, where you reconcile the magic of the onset experience with the footage and somehow you cannot see the footage objectively. You're just seeing all the things you didn't get and it makes you mm. feel bad. So that's where I'm at right now. How are you? <laughs> Wait, I'm curious. Does Sean watch the cut with you or does he not watch it? He he would. I didn't give it to him because he's an actor in it. So I refuse to let the actor see it, even though he's my husband it's kind of like the monitor like i never let an actor look at the monitor like i would never let sean look at the monitor either that's funny yeah i guess i think that keeps it pretty straightforward in some ways yeah yeah i'm doing good i guess the real thing is yeah i'm getting ready to go to italy in like two days which is for your like film really festival for the film yeah for the ravenna nightmare film festival where filmmakers like david lynch have played their films and <gasps> david cronenberg and a lot of other really fancy people including i can't remember his name right now but the director of society which we both love <gasps> as head of society. film play there so, so it's like oh my god i'm like in the best company in the world like going to this film festival i'm so like Oh, it's so cool. But yeah, I can't wait to get there. It's going to be quite a long trip, but it's going to be really fun. I'm there for a weekend. But yeah, I'm really jazzed. And I'm also like sad to be away from my daughter, but yeah. it'll be fine. You know, she just got her mom. She's got her grandma. She'll be good. It's good. Distance is good sometimes, right? You, <laughs> you can't always be with your kid. Yeah. And I'm also planning to use the, the flight time to write because it's going to be like, 
I don't know, 10 to 12 hours in the air or something like that. Okay. So like, that's a lot of time where I can be on my computer chipping away, riding away. I remember flying by myself without my son. I, it was like a few months ago or maybe a year ago. And I remember just being like, this is so easy. Like, I was just like, <laughs> swoop, put my bag away, swoop, sit down, relax, have a drink. Like it was the most unbelievably relaxing experience compared to what it's like when you're with a kid in a plane. Yeah. Yeah, the mask thing's not so much fun. It's, it's not fun to wear a mask while you're flying. But besides that, it's not so bad. Oh, the film, the alternate, we got into our 20 film festivals. We did it. We cracked <gasps> you did the code. It. Yeah. Super awesome. Tampa Bay Underground Film Festival what, in what? December. What, and what? then Shockfest is another one. And then the Studio City Film Festival out in Los Angeles. Although they're not giving me an in-person screening because I'm not from L.A. They're like, we're only giving L.A. filmmakers in person. Everyone else gets virtual. And I'm like, I could drive. I'll be there. Because they don't want people to fly. They're like, we don't want, you know, international, like, you know, like travel with COVID and everything. It's very, very smart of them. Very good for the world of them to do it that way. But it bones me out of another in-person screening. That's okay. But no, the movie's, yeah, I don't know. It's like, what can you even say anymore? It's doing too good. What We want a couple more awards. It's like, I don't know. I never expected this is going real well. This I never expected it to be like this. I was like, wait, four or five awards that we've won now, like twenty film festivals. Like, is this what happens? This doesn't seem. This isn't not my. You know, this is not the normal for me. So it's a little. Well, it is now, and also I think. Oh well, thank you, Liz. It is now. I also. Though it's like the feature world is a little bit different than the shorts world. Like we've talked about, like I really do think that shorts, it's you're competing against just like an insane amount of content. And when you get to the features world, it's still an insane amount of content, but there's just a little bit, just a teensy bit more opportunity, right? Mm -hmm. and, it, and so I think that's also what you're experiencing is that change from the shorts yeah. to the feature world. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see what I, what my next film is, if I make a short or if I make a feature. I was uh, only been thinking about features, basically like taking the Liz advice from the old Liz. <laughs> I was just like, features are the only thing that matters. And then I was talking to my friend the other day. I was like, oh man, that would be a really cool short film idea. But it's like, do you really want to spend two years making a short film that you can't sell, whereas you could spend like five years making a feature that you could sell? Why not do both? At the same time? Whoa. Yes. I love it. But anyways, I think we should talk about one thing that people have been loving us through lately, Patreon. Thanks to everyone who's jumped on Patreon and support us over the last few weeks. It's over at www.patreon.com slash podcast. Our lovely producer, Eric, has put some work into it to make it look a little nicer, to kind of update things a little bit better from when I did it by myself in a panic, you know, whatever, three years ago. So thanks to Eric for that. And there's much more exciting things coming. If I didn't have a movie to go and promote every weekend, I would be, it would be happening faster. But we don't want to say anything right now, right, Liz? We want to keep it a secret. Now. We're going to keep it a secret, but just a recognition that this show is made through the sacrifices and hard work of three individuals, the three of us, and that every <laughs> single dollar that goes into the Patreon goes towards the making of the show and that we are grateful for anything that you can support us with. 
Yeah, so if you've been thinking about it and you haven't done it yet, a dollar, no big deal. That's easy. And it would make the world of difference to us. So thanks in advance. And another thing that you should do if you have time is to check out the International Screenwriters Association, also known as the ISA. They are an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through a number of programs they offer, including publishing your logline to a network of industry professionals, consultation services, contests, and their top 25 writers lists featuring some of their best writers in their network. So head over to www.networkisa.org to sign up for free today. And if you want to bump up to like the fancy pantsy ISA Connect member service, you can do that Oh, with a discount. It's only $80 if you use our promo code MMIH2021, where it normally is $100 a year. And this is valid through November 30th. So you only have like what? Like 30 more days? Actually, actually at this point, probably like 20 Three weeks. Three weeks. Yeah, three weeks. So go check that out. And without any further delay, here is our chat with the Film Festival Alliance. We're here with the Film Festival Alliance. Can each of you please introduce yourself and your title? My name is Leela Meadow-Connor. I am the Executive Director of Film Festival Alliance. My name is Barbara Twist, and I am the Associate Director of Film Festival Alliance. And I am Gray Rodriguez, and I am the Communications Director for Film Festival Alliance. Jumping right in, could someone define for us what this amazing, massive institution is? What is the Film Festival Alliance? Film Festival Alliance is a nonprofit, a national organization, actually semi-international. We have members in Canada and some in the UK as well. And we are an organization that exists to serve film festivals and the people who run them. The majority of our work is creating professional development and networking opportunities for people who work in this industry, as well as creating transparent channels of communication with filmmakers and other stakeholders in our industry. And how did it all come together? Like, how was the Film Festival Alliance formed in its, you know, originally? FFA was born out of a project of IFP in, I should know this, I want to say it was about 11 years ago. We missed celebrating our 10th anniversary during the pandemic. We totally forgot about it. But it was formed as a project, actually, sort of informally at IFP or the Gotham, when a bunch of people, programmers would come together every fall, you know, and that was the one touch point that they had with one another was to like communicate about festivals and talk about what was going on in their worlds. Because so much of what all of us do is so siloed and many people don't have other film festivals in their immediate like community. And after a few years, it became a project of the Gotham. And then we joined forces with the Art House Convergence, which is an annual gathering of Art House Cinemas that took place every January in Utah, right before Sundance. So we programmed, co-programmed a film festival track with them for many, many years, as many film festivals also run cinemas and vice versa. There was a lot of crossover. And now I guess for about Eight years have been our own standalone nonprofit organization. I feel like, oh, go on, please. I was going to jump in and just say that's actually where Leela and I first met. Mm -hmm. I previously was with Art House Convergence and was the managing director of that. We're a program of the Michigan Theater Foundation for a long time. And so when I worked there, Leela and I started collaborating on programming in the film festival track. So then after I left Art House, Leela approached me at TIFF, uh, actually the last TIFF that I went to before the pandemic. And we were having some drinks and she was like, hey, would you ever thinking about working with FFA? And I was like, 
Absolutely. And so, yeah, then we, we got together and, you know, 2020 was a wild ride. And so we got to bring Gray on to the team. And so actually just really in a year ago this month, we went from being two extremely part-time people to being three reasonably part-time people. (laughs) So a lot of the people who listen to our show are emerging filmmakers. I mean, filmmakers of all levels, but I would say that there's a lot of emerging filmmakers. And I would say that it might blow their mind to know that there is a film festival alliance. It might blow their mind to know that there's an art house convergence. I think there's a whole amazing side to the industry that filmmakers may not be fully aware of. And I hope this doesn't reflect your marketing. I mean, like you guys are great marketers and it's a great organization, but I think there's kind of like a willing ignorance sometimes to think that it's just like you make your movie, you submit it and you see what happens. I mean, are there other organizations out there like FFA and Art House Convergence that filmmakers need to be made aware of? And why even, how does it serve a filmmaker to be conscious of all of these amazing programs that you guys are doing? Absolutely. I think for me, you know, in terms of other organizations, I think it is important for folks to acknowledge that just like in their own work, where they're going to have working groups, friend groups, collaborators, you know, and hopefully a, a larger organization. I think for filmmakers, that could look like the Gotham, that could look like Film Independent, Women in Film, the Transgender Film Center. There's a number of different organizations that bring together filmmakers that similarly, of course, though, there are going to be organizations that bring together the other professionals in the industry. Some others that I always love to shout out that, again, you wouldn't necessarily think there's the League of Historic American Theaters. So that is an organization that brings together people who operate historic theaters, some of whom are movie theaters. So that overlaps with, we have members in Film Festival Alliance who are members of LHA, but it also includes the Nederlander Foundation and the big Broadway theaters. So that's really fun. There's a fun organization called EMEA, the Association of Moving Image Archivists, and they bring together archivists from all over the country and archives that, again, are not just preserving the work of filmmakers, but are preserving the work of journalists, newscasters, sports, your local, you know, PBS channel, public access radio, all kinds of things like that. And so just remembering that, you know, for all the work that filmmakers are creating, there is an equal amount of people working to exhibit that, curate audiences for that, and most importantly, preserve that work. You know, we make so many films every year and we think that we have this, you know, incredible access. And in some ways, I suppose you could say there's greater access to film today than there was 50 years ago. On the other hand, like when you really dig into it and look at barriers to access, credit cards, internet, streaming, lack of physical video, you know, there's maybe not so much. And so just remember that there are a lot of other people in the field who are, you know, may not have the word filmmaker in their name, but are contributing an equal amount to our larger film culture. And for me, I think the importance of knowing this, especially with the exhibition community, is knowing that when you make your film, you might have an idea of who you think the audience is, or you might say like, oh, I want it to premiere at this festival or something like that. But to know that there, again, on the other side is a whole group of people who day in, day out are building audiences, are doing the good and important work of educating audiences, of connecting with individual humans and engaging with them about what they like to see and then getting them to get their butt in a seat to show up for your movie. (laughs) So that's that's what I love. You know, filmmakers should know that 
I would say a good majority of the people who work at and or run film festivals are filmmakers as well and got into this field like accidentally, you know, for, for a lot of us who are like in leadership positions now, we didn't go to school to become film festival executive directors or, you know, leaders. We went to film school and some path that we took led us to these independent exhibition side of things. So I think there is a great deal of sympathy and empathy from festival folks towards filmmakers. And a lot of them are doing both at the same time, like Barbara and I and, and many others. So I'm curious, what's the best way for filmmakers to participate in this, like to kind of work with exhibitionists and figure out where their films belong? Is it simply, you know, submitting to film festivals like we all do? Or is there other ways that filmmakers could collaborate with, you know, people on the exhibition side? Yes. What you just said reminds me of something that Emily Best, who runs Seed and Spark, always says about film festival strategy, that there is the ideal film festival strategy. And that is a thoughtful, curated approach where you look at every festival and you look to see what they actually program year over year. And you see how your film fits into that to make that decision. And then there's the typical way, which is spray and pray, (laughs) which I just think is such a funny, all props to Emily. I'm not sure where she heard that or came up with, I mean, it's just brilliant because it is, that's the typical approach, right? You, in your mind, you have festivals that you have an image of premiering at, oh, that place would be cool. And I think that that's a great place to start. There's nothing wrong with starting there, building a list of all the festivals that you think you want to apply to, and then ask yourself why you want to apply to those festivals. And that will give you some insight into what you want to do with your film. I always figured there's two questions, right? At the heart of it, the most important question is, is, is what do you want to do with your film? Where do you want it to go? But that can sometimes be difficult for people to, I think, attack, especially if they maybe don't have as much experience with many films playing different places, you know, or maybe it's a lot of times it could be a short film where financial recoupment is not the singular aim. So then it kind of becomes, well, what maybe what is the point of, you know, I I think I want people to see it, but I also kind of want to like, you know, feel cool and like show it off. And so by starting with a list of festivals that you think would be fun, you know, then you can ask yourself, why do I want to premiere at Sundance? Well, I want to premiere at Sundance because I want to go somewhere in the winter. Okay. Well, there you go. It opens up a whole bunch of other winter festivals like Aspen Shorts, for example, that you could, or Denver Film Festival that you could apply to. You know, maybe you want to premiere at South by Southwest because you want to see a bunch of cool concerts and hang out in a cool city. And like, yeah, I mean, South is like really cool. Great. You know, you can apply to Kukaloris, right? Which does a lot of music events and is in Wilmington and is like the most like in, I haven't been to the festival itself, but I have been to their compound. And like, let me tell you, you want to apply to Kukaloris. <laughs> you know, like maybe it's, you want to apply to a festival that is really going to connect you with other filmmakers. And so that again, is a great way you can start looking at, well, Where are cities where there's a good community of filmmakers? You know, you got to do your research. New Orleans, Chicago, Seattle, you know, you start Nashville, Memphis, you start kind of building these other places where you can achieve the goals that you have for your film and then look for the festival that's in that place. The other strategy that I'll take is starting with the film itself. What is the film about? Where is it set? Where was it shot? 
Then you expand to the people, the key talent that are involved. Where are they from? Where do they live? Where do they have connections? Where do they have family? What's the subject material of the film? What's the length? And through all of those, that can give you a good picture of the types of festivals that would be likely to show your film. And then lastly, I think it very much is part of a producer's job. And I mean, the producer who is not the director, I mean, no matter how big or small the film is, like have a producer who is not the director involved, someone who can handle the business side, the festival side, the distribution side, and allow the director to focus on the creative side of things. But having, you know, a producer think about your distribution and outreach strategy is just as critical as the locations and actually shooting the film. Because you can make a film and then it can sit on your hard drive for a really long time. (laughs) I like, it's embarrassing how many hard drives I have. And I have plenty of films that I've worked on that never really went anywhere. And so I think it's really important that from production, you're thinking about, you know, the next stage, where's this film going to go once we're actually finished. Jumping in a little bit about evaluating film festivals, is there like a definitive rubric or or something that evaluates them that that's not film freeway gold status or like Oscar <laughs> qualifying? Like how do you how do you trust and vet film festivals? Is is that also one of the services of the alliance? We don't vet them. I mean, we do, at, people go online and they apply to be a member. We do actually a small vetting process. Just make sure that, you know, they are not one of those award mill festivals mm-hmm. and that they, you can go to a website and pretty much tell, I think, whether a festival is ethical and you've heard about them. And, and Film Freeway is not the end all be all for finding out about those festivals. As you know, those top rated festivals are oftentimes the festivals that make you pay for a seat at the table. And that's just not the way the festival world works. How do you evaluate whether a festival is really a market or a destination for distributors and sales agents outside of like South by Sundance? Tiff? I mean, there's like a handful of five, but there must also be some sort of database of where distributors and sales agents like to go to. And I guess that's part of my question, too, is like, how do you know whether you should invest the time and energy in a film festival? That is such a great question and such a great database. I love that idea. (laughs) I can't say that I personally know of that. I think that it's one of the challenges of the film industry where there is certain information that seems to be, you know it if you know it, you know, and if you don't know it, you don't know it. I think the challenge is for a single organization to kind of go through this like accreditation vetting process. And so it does end up falling on, you know, again, the producer to do the research. And on the one hand, it's helpful if you're a producer who wants to make multiple movies, because then every time you do research, it's additive. On the other hand, you have tons of producers and tons of filmmakers, you know, every year kind of rehashing the same data and and the same research. So I think it would be great to be brilliant if there was a database of some sort. And we would certainly be happy to contribute in terms of corralling our members. But yeah, I do wonder if there's an opportunity maybe for like a a self-reporting database that, you know, festivals themselves could, you know, share important information. Like, do they offer jury cash awards? You know, like, you know, we already kind of know what their submission fees and things are like that. But Maybe there is something that could be created because it it does fall. It's a lot of additional labor that falls on the filmmakers. 
But on the marketing and press, I am going to ask Gray a question, which is that I have always wondered this as a filmmaker, like when you get into a festival, what's the, like Gray, with your experience, like what's kind of the expectation on the festival versus the expectation of the filmmaker in terms of generating press for their film? when they come to a festival? Yeah, that's a great question. And just for some background, I also act as the director of marketing for the Tallgrass Film Festival in Wichita, Kansas. And I've seen it happen a couple of different ways. You know, of course we get press kits and we build all of our own branding and material as the festival to promote the films and also do some work that was mentioned earlier of building the audience in the community or connecting with community partners that are relevant to the films, which I think helps a lot to obviously get butts and seats, but probably provides a more meaningful experience for the filmmaker as well to have some community ties connected to their subject. But as far as press goes, at least in my experience, we've done some junkets and certainly invite media to attend events. But there, there is a group or there's a type of filmmaker, I guess, that I appreciate that also reaches out and asks for the press list or asks for the contacts and really does that work. Most of the time, it is a producer to also do that kind of research and advocate for themselves because it is oftentimes a small team working at festivals. So it's nice when you hear that a producer is already connected with local media or they're they're doing some outreach as well, because it really feels like more of a partnership between the two, which I think creates valuable relationships long-term. So it's kind of a, a both, I guess, that that everyone's kind of working towards that press because it's, it's good for everyone when, when there's an audience there. So I just wanted to weigh in because I think it's funny because I always felt like I was doing something illegal when I reached out to the film festival to ask them for the press list. I was like, I wonder if they'll give me the press list. Like I never really realized that it was encouraged by the film. Well, I think I'm speaking for myself, so I hope I'm not like upsetting other marketing people by saying that. But I do think at least it shows initiative, you know, and also like, again, you know, your film better than the marketing person probably does. So while I can certainly reach out, it's really great when filmmakers are doing that as well, I think. And do you reach out to like for on behalf of every film or do you have to pick and choose because you just don't have all that kind of time? I think it depends on your, your team, like what kind of a bench you have. Like if it's a one person marketing team, it is a little harder to do it for every film, but I do think that's where your programming team comes in and can kind of pare it down for you. Like these films would tie really great with these organizations. And yeah, I mean, most of the time it is, you, you hope to be able to do that for every film or every shorts block. You want someone at every showing, of course. So I think that it, it's important to, to play fair, for lack of better terms. I was just at Heartland International last month. It was really great. It was an awesome experience. You know, they had a, mar- a community marketing person who they just hired for their this year. And they had done a really great job of like trying to get community groups out to certain screenings. And I was like thinking, okay, I have a sci-fi thriller. Like what community group is going to be interested in that? But then I just, just hearing you talk, it's like, oh, I should have researched. Like if they have like a Comic-Con or if they have some sort of mm-hmm. horror convention that they do in, in Indianapolis and then reached out to that group. And then, you know, try to like give that information to the film festival to say, hey, can we coordinate something here? And, and then the question is like, if a filmmaker did that, would you welcome that? Or would you be like, oh, that's too much. Like, why are they doing this? <laughs> yeah. I mean, again, I don't know 
why you wouldn't welcome more people coming to your festival. So absolutely, I think that's an excellent strategy that benefits everyone. And that's kind of back to, I think, Barbara's point too, about like, that's the value of doing research on the festivals you're submitting to, because you can look at that kind of stuff ahead of time as well and kind of already start planning. How are you going to, okay, you're, you're accepted, like what's next for you and how are you really going to connect with that community? So no, I think that again, in my personal opinion, that that's a really great idea. And, you know, there's probably opportunities too, if you can connect with the festival ahead of time and introduce them to those partners that you found to do some discounts for those groups and really help fill the theater from a different, tackling a whole different area of that town or city. So. And back to Barbara's point about having someone on your team who's specifically in charge of like the festival, not just like the submissions and all that, but like some of the most successful films that I've seen come through festivals have like an impact producer or somebody who's really engaged with like the screenings themselves and can reach out to the local organizations, especially when they have like some sort of social impact connection. But when when there's somebody that can do that work on behalf of the film, it's mutually beneficial to everyone. I want to congratulate y'all on the Film Festival Sustainability Survey that y'all did with Dear Producer, which was astounding, and I'm obsessed with it. And I just can, can you talk a little bit about what that was? Because I'm not doing a great job of explaining what it is and what the goals of it were, and just, just talk about it. It was wonderful. Yeah, we are so happy to have it out in the world. It was a survey and a report that I was particularly excited about, especially to bridge my work as a filmmaker and my work in exhibition and also my deep feelings about wage labor and paying people for, you know, not just their value, but their labor. And yeah, it just, it goes deep. And so it was exciting to be able to talk with people about it. It was born out of a number of things. Part of it was inspired by the Dear Producer producer report that came out last year that Rebecca put together, which was shocking and all the wrong ways, negative Basically shocking. Said that producers were making less than a lot of producers were making less than twenty yeah. thousand dollars per year. I mean exactly insane. Yeah. And then the other part of it was that anecdotally, Leela and I were hearing that festivals were paying filmmakers in 2020. And then another kind of angle was I was on the board for several years of the Ann Arbor Film Festival. And they recently adopted last year a policy of paying filmmakers that was born out of work of a filmmaker festival person who out of Canada that was really pushing to pay experimental filmmakers. And for them, it was kind of a little bit, it was closer to artists and that's more traditional to pay artists through like a lot of grants, like the Warhol grant and NEA really pushes for individual artist payment. And so for experimental filmmakers, it's like they're often in museums and things like that, where paying artists is the norm. So then moving over into the festival world. So we kind of, you know, I was getting hit, you know, in three different directions about filmmaker sustainability. And so we wanted to take it on at FFA and start recording it just to get a baseline. And so that's really what this year was. We had about 70 plus festivals give us a, a much more robust financial picture. And of that, we found that folks were in fact paying filmmakers. The ways that they're paying filmmakers really varies depending on budget size, operating budget of the festival. Some things that I found interesting were that 
the festivals were more likely to pay screening fees than revenue sharing. Revenue sharing would be where you would pay a percentage of the box office generated for that particular film. Screening fees would be a flat amount that's either negotiated individually with the filmmaker or kind of just set across the board. Some thoughts that I had around that is that revenue sharing can be challenging because box office reporting for festivals can be really different, right? When you go to a cinema, you buy a ticket, you pay for the ticket, a percentage of that ticket gets paid back to the distributor. It's fairly simple. You might have different ticket amounts, but it's pretty simple. With a festival, you've got badges, you've got comps, you've got sponsor comps. And how's that different from volunteer comp? And if someone's got a badge and sees six films and someone else has a badge and sees two films, you know, how do you kind of break up all of that? So I think that partly lends us to screening fees, but also I personally like kind of the flat of a screening fee, that it's very consistent and it's transparent and it's the same for everyone, which can be nice. The other thing that I noticed was that larger festivals, festivals with budgets over a million dollars, the majority of money they reported giving back to filmmakers was in the form of cash awards, which is super cool. Also, cash awards are juried, which means they're subjective and they're also going to a smaller group of people. So you have an opportunity there where, you know, it comes down to some basic questions that and values I think that your festival has, right? Do you want to make a monumental impact in several filmmakers' lives? Or are you do you want to spread the money kind of across multiple people and maybe it's not that much money, but it's sort of a, a general consistency and fairness across everyone? And I don't think that either way is better than the other. It's just a different approach of redistributing the wealth that your organization is generating from the work of these filmmakers. So as long as you're paying filmmakers, that's kind of my baseline. It also, I think, is a great way for filmmakers. You know, we will expand on this survey and reporting going forward. And we really encourage filmmakers to visit our website, which is filmfestivalalliance.org and read some of our other reports. We did some annual reports. We'll be doing some salary surveying, some staff end of year financial reports as well for filmmakers to understand all the expense that goes into a festival. Because I do think it's important, like we reported like, oh, 41% of the box office revenue generated went back to filmmakers. And that's kind of a fun number to bandy about and to see, oh, okay, you know, festivals really are, you know, giving back to filmmakers. On the other hand, like there are very real expenses and there's a lot of other work that festivals do year round. So I think it's important for everyone to understand, you know, all the labor that goes into it because fair is very relative. And at the end of the day, the majority of us working in this space, whether that's independent film or independent exhibition, like we're not dealing with large amounts of money. So it can make it even more challenging to be fair because you're like, oh, but I'm already not getting paid enough and now I have to pay someone else. And, you know, so just coming back, I think, to a larger values-based conversation, which is that I want to live in a world where independent filmmakers can make movies and be sustainable and people, you know, independent festivals can run. And maybe we don't all live in mansions, but you know what? We can all pay our bills and see our families and friends and watch movies together. And that's kind of my larger vision <laughs> that the survey is somehow going to lead to. So all we can check back 
on that. <laughs> I think it's just the survey was additionally important because it's just nothing like that out exists, right? It's like, I think a lot of filmmakers are not aware that a lot of film festival employees are being underpaid or paid very little. Again, this is a great unifying gesture to remind people that we're all in it together. I'm really drawn to the rev share model because it is like a theatrical run. I mean, it's like, what really are the differences between a theatrical and film festival? And that's not a question. It's just, a, it's just throwing that into the conversation. As leaders in the Film Festival Alliance, as filmmakers, maybe you can answer individually, what are you trying to push film festivals to do? Like, what do each of you have a specific goal you're trying to encourage the aggregate film festival community to take on? Just to speak quickly as not a filmmaker, but as just someone who's worked in festivals. Great, for... I've just decided you're a filmmaker. Yeah. I, sorry, sorry about that. I say one day because, you know, I feel like Leela and Barbara will convince me one day. That's just what I think. But I will say just from a festival organizer and someone who's worked for almost 10 years in, in film festivals, it's for me about equity and all these conversations about, you know, equity and fairness and pay and, and really work-life balance for the festival worker. And I think that kind of can carry over for the filmmaker as well like just really examining like what's important, how we're treating our staff, fairly paying people is something that I've noticed just as I see people burn out or leave the industry or leave the festival part of the industry because they're tired and they're really people who, who could do a lot of good, but leave. So that's what my thought. I'll pass it to a filmmaker now. <laughs> I would echo that. I think it's compounding like both of what Barbara said about there just not being a lot of money in, in our independent sphere altogether coupled with what Grace said about, you know, this equitable pay and transparency. I, I'd just like to see more transparency between filmmakers and festivals and more transparency just about like the whole process, you know, about the process so that we understand what each other are dealing with. We understand, you know, the work that goes into a film festival and that your submission fees aren't going to make a festival rich. They're probably literally going to keep the lights on. And so I really think that, that if our sector of this industry is going to survive, we really just have to be communicative and collaborative. Yeah, everything that Gray and Leela said, you know, I think for me, it comes down to transparency and that's being open about data. Luckily, the majority of film festivals are nonprofits, so you can look up their 990s, you know, <laughs> like including the big ones, you know, Sundance Institute, it's a nonprofit, you know? So I think like being transparent about our financial data, you know, as is reasonable, and then also about, our roles and what everyone does, because I think that we exist in an ecosystem where a filmmaker is on the same level as a programmer who's on the same level as an archivist who's on the same level as a film critic and so forth, you know, in a perfect world, everyone helps support everyone else and we all contribute to a more vital and brilliant film culture. So I want to hear more about the the day-to-day -day work that you do with festivals. Like how, like you have all these festivals that are part of the FFA, but what are you doing with them to help them improve? Are you like coming up with like standardized like processes that they can adapt if they want to? Are you, what are some of the things that you are doing with all your festivals in order for them to like, you know, improve? Yeah, I'll start with that by touching on like sort of what we did pre-pandemic, which was really focused on bringing people together in person around different festivals. And we have these regional roundtables where we come together to talk about best practices. Fast forward to 2020, spring of 2020, and it was just 
the middle of March, maybe like the second week of March. And it was a Friday afternoon and we started hearing all this stuff about COVID. And, you know, a lot of us were planning to go to South by. And we just decided we were going to call like sort of an industry-wide, you know, Zoom. And we've been using Zoom for years at FFA because our members are all across the country. Our board members are all across the country. So it wasn't necessarily a new thing for us at the time. And we invited everyone. We, we were like, this is a conversation that's bigger than just our 250 members. You know, Anyone who's involved in this part of the industry is welcome to join us for this conversation. Half of the people were like, I'm still going to South by. The other half of the people were like, oh, no, I'm canceling right now. Literally, we got and the, the call ended and an hour later, South by canceled. And so every week, every week for from March until September, every Friday afternoon, we held a call. It was open to everyone in our industry. And we had like Cleveland Film Festival is one of the first ones to go virtual. So they came on and talked about like how they did it. We did case studies and we did drive-in conversations and we did audience engagement conversations. And we talked to some filmmakers and we talked to some exhibitors and distributors and like cinemas. And it was really great. And sometimes the conversations were really robust. And sometimes it was just literally people wanting a safe space to come and like be with other folks who are going through the exact same thing. The work that we did during the pandemic shifted kind of like everybody else's did, but a lot of it was really just connecting people and, and allowing them to come together at the same time at the same place to talk about issues that we were all facing in the moment. So instead of a in-person conference this January, obviously we didn't do that. We did a virtual conference called Film X. And it was attended by over 800 people, which was really incredible. And one of the wonderful things about doing things virtually is that there's more access for more people. So when you, when you host a conference in a pricey resort in Utah right before Sundance, pretty much the only the executive director or leadership of an organization is going to be able to come. But we were seeing people, you know, down to like the manager level and below who are, and, and seasonal workers and volunteers who were able to participate in these, in these conversations that tend to be really limited to like the upper echelon of leadership. So it was really wonderful to be able to hear other voices and bring other voices to the table. And that's kind of the, what, the work that we've been doing this year has been mo mostly virtual. We're really looking forward to next year. We can start to convene again. We're going to do Filmex again virtually in January, but then we'll plan three regionals where we'll meet up in person at our member festivals throughout the year, because I think we're all really hungry for it and ready for it. And as you said, like going to Heartland, wasn't it great to like be back at a film festival and have that connective experience and watch a movie in theater and have a Q&A and meet other filmmakers. Like there's really nothing like it. I think we got so far away from that just in 18 months that like, you know, it was, it was so hard to remember what that experience was like, but now we're having them again. And it's so, it makes you realize why film festivals are so important. So day to day, we're programming for FilmX. We engage with our members and I'll let Barbara and Grace speak to sort of what they're doing day to day as well. But a lot of us sort of thinking big picture about, you know, what, what does 2022 look like? What does our programming look like? What is our through lines? So, you know, who's going to be on our board? Kind of a sort of stuff that you would that most nonprofit executive directors do in terms of like stewardship, stewardship of the organization. And a lot of times we'll have members reach out and say like, hey, I'd love to talk to you about this. And I would Barbara and I joke that, you know, during 2020, we had a lot of like therapy sessions with a lot of our members. <laughs> and you know, I think it's just like for them just having a half an hour, an hour with us to talk about what they were doing and sort of hear because we talked to so many people to hear what other people were doing and to like know that like they weren't alone was one of the most important things. And I do think that, that the work of best practices and, and networking and sharing of ideas is still there, but it's really been cemented post-pandemic. Leela, you nailed it. Yeah, I mean, she's that's, a pro. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, 
are still in the process of undertaking a strategic plan process this year that will lead into next. And so that has been all of these things that we've been doing have been very informative for that as we look to shape, you know, like the next five years of FFA. There's sort of a natural, obviously the, the pandemic became this sort of natural marker barrier boundary of things that I think have changed. We always talk about, oh, the industry is always changing. It's changed fundamentally. And I don't know. I mean, it's sort of, but also like here we are 120 years later, like still watching movies and movie theaters, like come on, it's not that different. But I think what has changed is, you know, some of the ways in which we're engaging with people, the concept of virtual cinema as part of a festival, you know, is new and here and isn't going anywhere. And we're excited to work with our festivals to see the ways in which that will become part of their regular festivals going forward. There's been a lot of extremely overdue conversations regarding accessibility, physical accessibility for people, you know, whether that's in an actual space, you know, so often you hear festivals or organizations say like, oh, we're ADA accessible. And like, you know, like that, that's the bare minimum. Like that's not something to champion. You're ADA accessible because that's the law. You literally couldn't be open unless you were that. (laughs) So we are, you know, working, you know, we're not there yet. And we certainly have not, it's not like all of our panels and events have been extremely accessible up until now. So I don't want to overstate, you know, that we somehow have, you know, done great things, but we are also processing that and working through that to make sure that going forward, all of our events do adhere to it, you know, guidelines around accessibility and things like that. And I think it just, it's opened up a lot of opportunities for that type of thing. And and lastly, I'd say it's sort of reimagined our relationship with filmmakers and we've been able to get closer with filmmakers during the pandemic because of the ease of making Zoom meetings and things like that. And that's always very helpful because you know, we want to, we're here to serve the needs of film festivals and provide spaces for them to come together. But often there are, we hear about potential problems or challenges to the festival industry from filmmakers. And then it's through hearing what their experience is that we can bring some new ideas and some new conversations to, you know, the festivals in our, you know, FilmX and things like that. I think in lieu of our final five questions, Auric, I have an alter- alternate plan. Do you mind sure. if I just, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to like sure, just do it. reroute us. Ulrich asked a question earlier that I just want to press again. And maybe it could be like the way we cap off this conversation, which is like, you know, short form, what are the top three things filmmakers can do to better work with film festivals? And I would just love to hear if you, if each of you had a perspective on this that you wanted to share. I'd love to hear each of you answer this. I can give one kind of in the same vein as what I talked about before, but coming from a festival perspective is just the value of that research, like I said, and really like showing you've you've examined who the audience is and are being intentional about your submission goes a long way. Just reading what the festival is looking for, but also going beyond and researching, I would say means a lot to the team on the ground at that festival, because I don't know, it just shows an extra step of care. So for me, that that research is really important and helps build that relationship for sure. That's amazing. We, we could also do one per person too, to get a total of three. That's what I was thinking. Cause there were three of us. I was like, <laughs> mm, maybe she'll get it. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. I think it would be great. And this goes for both sides of it, but it kind of goes back to my transparency point. But I think if, if there was sort of a better understanding of 
what it takes to put on a film festival and all the roles that go into a film festival and vice versa, like same for the film. I think if we could really have that sort of breakdown and, and be like, here's what, here's what the film festival is doing. Here's how much things cost. Here's what, here's what we're doing with your submission fees. Like here's where, here's literally how that's helping us turn the projector on. You know, I think that really understanding because now we're going into this era and some of the work that we're doing at the FFA that I didn't mention earlier is a strategic plan about looking at the future of film festivals. And what are we? Are we, you know, Barbara mentioned the hybrid. Yes, that's probably here for a long time or maybe forever. So what is the future? And we have to really come together as neither could exist without the other. Filmmakers could not exist. Independent filmmakers need the festival circuit and festivals of need the independent filmmakers more than ever, especially with distributors, you know, going straight to streaming and, and, I think that's one advantage that film festivals have over cinemas is that we have that direct relationship with the filmmakers, whereas, you know, the cinemas are relying on the distributors. And I think that if we can solidify those relationships and hopefully the FFA can do some of that work as well, we can really keep this, our part of of the industry sustainable. Okay. I have two because no one has ever accused me of being brief. So... (laughs) (laughs) The first is make sure your film is finished. And by that, I mean, if it's a short film, like personally, I would not send a work in progress. I would just wait until my short film is finished. There are different rules if you're doing a feature and you're submitting to Sundance and you have previous relationships and all that kind of stuff. But for the most part, like submit your finished film because, you know, it's just you're competing against a lot of other people. So you want to put your best foot forward. And also in that same vein, you know, is your film really the length that it needs to be? And the best way to find out about that is to screen it multiple times for multiple different groups of people before you finish the film. You know, that's what big studios do. You know, they, they show the film in Dallas and in Burbank and, you know, make sure that, you know, you don't necessarily have to do test scores, but, you know, even if it's a two minute short, show it to a couple different people, you know, get their take on it, get their feelings, like dig deep, ask them real questions about links. It's also great practice for you to better understand your own film. And then the last thing I'll say is also, it's important to know your rights as a filmmaker. You have the right to not be treated poorly by a festival. You have the right to clear communication from a festival around your submission. If you've paid a submission fee, you know, you have the right to know whether or not your film has been accepted, kind of where things are in the process. You have the right to ask for a screening fee. They might say no, um, but I often hear that, you know, folks either don't realize they can ask for one or they're maybe afraid to. If your film has been accepted and you ask for one and the festival comes back and says, no, and we're taking your film out of the festival, that's not a great festival. That's, that is a terrible, I mean, like I'll go on record. That's a terrible festival and email me immediately who it is. And I'm, I'm happy to get on the horn and tell them my, you know, (laughs) my two cents. Like, you know, it's, I just think it's important for festival or for filmmakers to know that like, you shouldn't feel like you're at the whim of the festival. Of course, there's a, there's a mutual respect and there is, as Leela said, there's, it's important for you to understand and to empathize, you know, with the work that the festival is doing and that, you know, often they are receiving hundreds, if not thousands of submissions. And that is a lengthy process. So, you know, then maybe there's a delay in the response or things like that. But, you know, we do also hear through the group grapevine experiences of filmmakers where they've had to pay for things that, 
you know, like pay for an award or, you know, maybe aren't getting a great experience and, you know, just know that like you also deserve to be treated like a human being. So, you know, again, like you're always welcome to hit us up. We're again, we're not a policing body. It's not like we can necessarily take care of something, but if you do have a poor experience at a festival, or if there is a a larger concern that you see in the festival industry, like we do want to know that because that's something that, you know, is helpful for us to know and to, you know, maybe it's something we're not seeing that we could address on a, on a larger level. And I do want to just slightly jump onto what Barbara said. Like if you go to the Film Festival Alliance website and you look at our members, they're all slightly vetted. Like Barbara said, we are not a policing body, but we do feel that we do the research to find out as best we can, that they're ethical festivals, meaning they're treating filmmakers right, they're treating audiences right, they're treating the communities right. So that's a really good place, I think, to start. And you've probably been at, played at, or applied to many of these festivals. They're really wonderful. And for the majority, community-based festivals. One more thing I wanted to say, I'm sort of swerving into Gray's Lane here a little bit, but from a marketing standpoint, it's really helpful if you have a feature, if you have a trailer. It really helps sell the film. And it really helps if you have labeled photos. And I was just going to say that. <laughs> yeah. Like copy that you can copy and paste easily from your website. If it's not in Film Freeway, you have your short synopsis, you have your long synopsis. It really saves so much time for the film festival. Yes. I, I can't stress that enough. Like a beautiful still is so goes a long way. And I think that that's like a very technical thing. I didn't know if it was too technical to bring up. So I'm glad you did, Leela. And as someone who just came off a festival, I appreciate a filmmaker who has a labeled file and a still that's not a poster, that's not got text on it. It's just a really nice, high quality still. So pro tip, that along with everything that Leela mentioned is huge <laughs> for the team. What I did for my, because I'm in the middle of my run right now, is I made a folder of like, you know, 10 different stills, poster, EPK, final files, everything. It's all on Google Drive. Whenever I get into a festival, I just send them that and I say, here's all the art. Here's all the EPK. Here's all the the raw trailer. Here's the the final movie. If you need a different version, let me know. And then that's kind of how I start the conversation. And it seems to have been going pretty well. And then it makes it easy for me because I don't have to like unpack so much each time I get into one. Yeah, that sounds really nice. (laughs) And I'm sure you make all the Instagram carousels because people are like, that one has a still. (laughs) So, yes. (laughs) Yeah. I always wonder if there should be like a a common app. I know there's Film Freeway, but like funny enough, festivals don't actually have the like they don't get the trailer, the stills, et cetera, that you upload to Film Freeway necessarily. So you find yourself duplicating a lot of that work. So I love the way that you have that as just a Google Drive folder, so much easier. The last thing I'll say is caption your film. If you can't, if you, it's not about can't afford, if you did not budget for a proper caption and audio description, go to rev.com it will give you captions that are just, you know, dialogue and a little bit of audio description. The great thing is you can edit it yourself. It's really easy to do. And it's a great way to learn about the important work that audio description folks do. Do it. It costs a dollar a minute. So if you made a short, you can't tell me you don't have that money. Email me and I'll pay for it. (laughs) You know, like (laughs) we just, it's, it is, if you send captions, you know, festivals are starting to require captions more and more. But if we as filmmakers 
start putting captions in our budgets and start prioritizing that. That's really critical for folks who maybe are hard of hearing. I am. I have a hearing loss. If people, maybe English is not, if the film is in English and English isn't their first language, captions are helpful. You're going to end up, if you end up sending it, you know, to a festival in a country where the language of the film is not the language of the country, you're going to need them. So it's just, it's so easy to do that it at this point, like, you know, you can't not do it. So just prioritize <laughs> that budget for it. And, you know, more people will be grateful. More people will be able to watch your film. I mean, because when you think about it, people who are deaf straight up can't watch your film if they don't have captions. So you've just completely excluded a group of people often for what is a very small amount of money. That's amazing advice. And I know that we have to we have to cap up this conversation. So we just want to thank you for being a part of our show and for talking about the Film Festival Alliance. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, thank you. Liz, <laughs> we did not talk to them yet. So this is probably pointless. But what do you expect them to say? What are you thinking this is going to be about? Well, okay, this is funny, because I know what I'm going to ask them. I don't know. I, I think that anyone who's listening, because we're probably going to talk about this in the interview, anyone who's listening should go over to DearProducer.com and read the Film Festival Sustainability Survey that Dear Producer and the Film Festival Alliance put together and published, I believe it was this week. And it is the most amazing just like report on how film festivals survive this day and age and like the compensation they give to filmmakers. And so I would say hopefully everyone's reading it while they listen. And uh, is it not that they're making tons of money off of all the submission fees and their fat cats living it up in the, in the high life? That's not the result. I mean, the takeaway the is that a lot of them are struggling, of course. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, I feel like uh, filmmakers yeah. have that idea of film, film, film festivals that they just think that like, oh, they're just like charging these big fees and they're just making money off of like small filmmakers and, you know, they don't even give anything back, blah, blah, blah. It's like, oh, it's just a money making game. And it sounds like that's not the case with the Film Festival Alliance film festivals. No, but you'll also be surprised because I think a lot of filmmakers are afraid of asking for screening fees and the like. And you'd be surprised that there are more than you suspect that are giving out screening fees in spite of mm. all of them struggling. And then there's also some interesting data with regard to diversity and the makeup of the mm. staff and the compensation of the staff itself. But I just encourage people to support Dear Producer and the survey that they put out. Awesome. Yeah. So Liz... You've got a news article for us this week. What What is the deal with this article from Hollywood Reporter? Right. So we have an article and it's called AFM 2021 Streaming Wars. COVID will put indie film models to the test. And it breaks down about, you know, AFM, which is going on this week, what the predictions are with regard to how indie film will survive. And I just will say right now that I am like allergic to all of these hot take articles with people <laughs> trying to anticipate what's going to happen to the world of film distribution. And I also, if I'm going to go on a rant, which I seem to be, I also don't like them calling indie film lower budget, but still high prestige titles could be safer bets for international buyers among them are the biopic Lee starring Kate Winslet and Marion Cotillard <laughs> from Rocket Science, CAA, and UTA. It's like, no, that's this is not a, you don't even use the word lower budget. Even if you mean lower than 500 million, don't use the word lower budget in reference to a Marion Cotillard and Kate Winslet film. Okay, I'll get off my soapbox. I just was frustrated with this article and about, I just think like, 
they don't know anything. They don't know anything. And they're just kind of like spewing out theories about whether theatrical is going to save us or not. Yeah, it's uh, really interesting, this whole thing about, you know, indie film, like what's indie film and like what people are calling indie film are these like, you know, big budget movies like backed by humongous agencies, you Mm -hmm. know, and I just had a conversation with some friends a while ago and you're talking about filmmakers and, you know, films and they kept on just naming like... (laughs) Martin Scorsese and Clint Eastwood and I was like yeah but like what about like unknown like smaller film named filmmakers and then one of them was like so but why do we care about them (laughs) I was like I guess that's true if like if you're not a famous person like why why do people even want to talk about these filmmakers who you know are making these other movies like why does it matter like who even cares about movies that are smaller than this biopic Lee or whatever like the movies that we're making you know and I feel like People do care because people watch them, you know, and we and we hear about them, like people watching them. And like you see the reviews, you see people discussing them. You see people like like I was in I was in Indianapolis for the Heartland International Film Festival. And I was like talking to a guy in one of my Uber drivers or Lyft drivers. And he was like, yeah, you know, like I just watch everything. Like I just watch everything I can. Like on any, I have all the streaming services. I have all the platforms. If it's got 4K, I'll watch it. So even if it's like not doesn't have a great rating, I'll watch if it's in 4K. And it's like that guy is the guy who's watching our stuff. Who's just like going through, like looking at posters and be like, oh, that looks cool. I haven't seen that. Let me watch it. You know. And those people exist in the world. It's just, but they're not. You're not their average person who isn't a movie nut. I still think that these articles and these press pieces and everyone uh, who are who's not in the industry makes a lot of presumptions about indie content and do, they feel very disconnected to me. Like even this article said it referenced a bunch of films and they said a decade ago, this sort of lower budget indie fair would likely have gone directly to Netflix. And it's like, yeah, if we're lucky, like you're, you're like starting, you're acting as if Netflix is the bottom of the barrel. A lot of us would be so lucky to get on Netflix, even a decade ago. So this idea of like completely disregarding our type of filmmakers, the filmmakers that you and I are and the type of filmmakers that we generally communicate with, I don't even believe that your Uber driver would watch our movies. I just think that we're like in a class way, sorry, Alric, to loop you in with my negative, (laughs) negative Nancy thinking. But I'll say this for myself. I just think I'm in a class way below what Hollywood Reporter would ever talk about. And so I just hate this speculation and this kind of like grab all terminology when it's based on just like box office mojo. It's based off of data that is only connected to high profile films. So anyway, whatever. I'm just frustrated. And my favorite moment in this article is they talk about finding the right marketing hook for the right territory. And someone said in reference to the movie Another Round, which everyone apparently loves, which is about day drinking, as someone said, I bought it as soon as I heard the pitch. I know a movie about drinking would work for Russia. And it's like, what a weird statement. It's like, we know nothing about audiences. We're just taking cultural stereotypes and they're like, oh, Russians, they like to drink. I think they'll like this movie about day drinking. And then they pitch it out. But there's no real true data that's putting forth why people acquire the content that they do. It seems to be like a blind, a blind instinct based off of, of racism. Yeah, 
I'd agree with that statement. I definitely, I talked to a distributor recently who was like, yeah, you know, your, your leads, they're not white people. So this, this might be a, a hard sell internationally. And I was like, really? Like, why? Why do they like, say that? Is that true? Because I don't really think that's necessarily true. There's people of all different colors all over the world. Like, it really is the content that matters. And it's, it's like how you market it and what the movie is actually about. And it's either going to, you know, resonate with people or it's not, you know? And like, I'm just hoping that when my movie gets out into the world that it resonates with people and then it, it spreads along and it gets, gets seen. Like, that's what you should be focused on. It's just making a movie that resonates with you that you hope resonates with other people and not like getting, you know, Ryan Felipe to star in it because <laughs> someone tells I've you that Ryan Felipe before. is yeah. uh, the person who should star in your movie. And it's like, no offense to Ryan Felipe, whatever. Movies can star more people than just like, you know, a handful that have been deemed like sellable by like, you know, international sales reps or whatever. Because the truth is just like any other part of this business, no one knows anything. (laughs) No one knows. No one knows. I also think that what actually propels projects forwards is is nepotism is what I think propels projects forward. And that's, you know, like so. And then I think that these projections that industry experts share are just them grasping at straws and saying something that's quotable because they know that the press is going to pick them up. I don't think there's any real truth to it. 100% agree. You should just make the content that calls at you, that itches at you. But ultimately, the labs, the fellowships, representation festivals is all too to help you get on that elevator to the nepotism helping you. (laughs) It's the elevator to nepotism, the nepotism cuddle party, as I like to call it. (laughs) And so it's just the long game to get on that elevator. Here's my question, and I think you kind of just answered it, but like, do you think it's more important to play that game to get on that elevator than it is to just make movies that you care about? Like, what's more important? Well, I mean, it depends on whether you're trying to make money at this. So if you're trying to make money at this, yeah, I do think it's more important to play the game and to, you know, I, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm trying to speak as vaguely as possible. <laughs> <laughs> so I was on Twitter today and I, I'll, I don't want to call this person out, but I will say that someone who is a very well-known indie film celebrity posted a review of their film and then acted as if it was a positive review. Something like, thank you so much to IndieWire or whatever it was, or like they liked it or something like that. I go into the review, I look at it, and it is not a positive review. And if you look at the comments that this person received, you could tell no one has read this review and they're just taking his word for it. They're just using very shallow thinking. So what I'm saying is I honestly think success in this industry is just acting like you're successful, acting entitled and using your relationship and kind of like scrubbing your way through project by project and leveraging those to a real career. That's not an artist. That's not an artist. Well, okay. I have a couple of things to say about that. First, like... You know, I I have gotten reviews for the alternate and I've been posting all of them. Luckily, they've all been positive so far or mostly positive. But I'm wondering, like, what am I going to do when I get the negative review? And don't post it. But I think I should because I think that's only what is like honest as a filmmaker. It's like 
I, I post all these reviews. Oh, look how great I am. How beautiful I am. But then I don't post the one one that's a little bit more challenging, a little more tough on me. I feel like that makes me look like a, sh- like, a sh- like a schmo, like an but idiot. I post know? negative reviews. I do it too. I think it's funny. I post people saying like, no, thank you on Letterboxd to my movies. Like literally are like, no, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, and, and I think it's hilarious. But then think about what you're putting forth into the universe every time you do that you're saying like i accept this evaluation of my work and it's not it doesn't attract momentum the way confidence does and i think Mm. that i'm just saying like i don't think i'm ever going to reach that echelon because i don't know how to act that way and i really like that you would post negative reviews but it's not going to help you it's not going to help your career but you think that what this person this unnamed person did the the thing that was wrong was that they pretended it was a good review and posted it anyways they knew that people were not going to read the review cuz they know that people are lazy and they just kind of amplified their own career and steamrolled ahead as if it didn't matter which is cuz it cuz well, here's my my devil's advocate cuz if indiewire posted a review of my movie i'd probably do the same thing I'd be like, wow, we got reviewed by IndieWire. Check it out, you know? And yeah, like, but why just say that? Are you going to say like, they loved it? <laughs> no, I wouldn't say it. But you could look at that as just being like some sort of, like a very self-deprecating comment, you know? Like like he's, he's taking the, the piss out of himself or herself. Maybe. I know? would. I hope so. But it just, that moment made me think like, oh, like the real way to navigate successfully, if you want to be successful, not about if you want to be a good person or if you want to be a good artist, but if you want to be successful <laughs> is to just kind of like steamroll, act like you're the shit. Yeah, to, to just put forth an, an aura of success around well, That person you. was probably thinking like, oh, like, you know, we said, like I said, they love it. It's really hilarious. Everyone's going to comment and say like, oh, ha, yeah, right. Like, oh, it's so sorry to hear that or whatever. And then like they can have it. I don't know. Who knows? But I mean, I just love that. Like, I don't love, but it's just funny how you see it as like this person's a, a piece of shit. I think they're a douche. Uh, I'll give you one more example. And I swear, I know, I think, but like, okay, someone else on Facebook that I'm friends with posted a fabricated press piece Uh as if it was about him and the upcoming release of his first film. And it was very obviously fabricated, but there were like 50 plus comments that were like, congratulations, dude. Great job. I knew you had it in you. Like no one could tell. (laughs) It's about media literacy and it's about the people who are taking advantage of lack of media literacy. That person is legitimately a jerk for like making (laughs) up an article and then posting it. Like that I can't get behind. But yeah, yeah, I mean, I feel like if you're just promoting yourself and you know you're you're using the you know whatever the review that's negative as as a piece of promotion and just being honest about it or trying to make a joke out of it i don't think there's anything wrong with that i guess we don't know know if this person was making a joke out of it and that's very true i think the core of it is not what actually happened the core of it is how i interpreted it and i was just thinking (laughs) like the people that were surrounded by that are successful don't seem to let the small don't they don't seem to sweat at what people think of them they just kind of like go forward 
Yeah, I also feel like the real successful people, like it's, it's either they're really good at social media and they're always on it and they're like always promoting themselves or they don't care at all. Oh yeah, they're <laughs> not on social media and they like have this aura like, of mystery instead. Yeah, yeah, they're just not a part of it. Like they maybe they don't even have an account or if they do have an account, they never post, you know, and it's just like, I feel like I'm somewhere in the middle. Like I have an account, I definitely post, but I'm not like, you know, a, a regular Twitter or a regular Instagrammer or whatever, but I just, you know, get my work out there through it because I feel like that's like one of the currencies that you get from going to a film festival is like you get the currency of promotion. What mm -hmm. I'm excited about is like when the movie comes out, like now I have 20 different accounts to, to blast the movie out on when right. the movie comes out, you know, cause like every time that I've, you know, gotten to a film festival and the, the, the short film is available online, they always retweet it. They always share it. And so I feel like that's what I'm really excited about is like trying to use that as part of the promotion for when the movie okay. is out in the world. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's so interesting. I mean, I just don't think that waiting for the elevator seat is like, it's just a fallacy, man. Like you're not waiting so many... for it. You're hustling to get on the elevator. Right. I mean, I feel like so many people will like, they won't make movies, right? Like they don't, they don't go out and make their own thing because they're, they're chasing the, the $10 million budget, the $5 million budget, the $1 million budget. They're chasing the star attachments. They're chasing the perfect script. They're chasing all these things. And like, you know, there's only so many seats on the elevator. There's only so many places and trying to get there before you've even done anything of note really is like, like, does that really work? I mean, obviously it works for some people, but it's like, I don't know. I feel it like... It depends. Yeah. It depends on what your reputation is and like whether you have Sundance associated with you or AFI or whatever it is. But if you're just a starting out person, it's like, why would you take all this time to try to like, you know, get into one of these these artist programs or get into one of these things and then years and years of, of those applications, years and years of writing grants and then like, maybe you get to make your movie like five to 10 years later, it's like, I don't know. Like, I like the idea of just doing it on your own, making making the thing, even if it takes five to 10 years to do it, but at least you'd have made it, you know, and not just like gone through all this series of rejection and, you know, like trying to get these people's attention and trying to get into this upper echelon, but just never making it. And I feel like I see a lot of people in my network do that because that's all they know to do. They don't know how to do it the other way where they raise money and make their movie or they don't want to. I don't know. That's what I think is really interesting is like, what's the right way? Well, I hear what you're saying, but I also think, look, it's too late for me to do those programs. I actually have aged out, so to speak. So I can't do them because I've done two features. And if there's another program that I'm not aware of, like, let me know. I want to do it. I, <laughs> I want to do these development programs. <laughs> But what I'm noticing is I tried, I, my goal this year was to level up. So I attached myself to a bunch of features and I realized because it's so hard to get one project off the ground because you have to kind of manufacture a level of momentum that is like almost inhuman. It's like alien, like you have to create it out of nothing, <laughs> that it's impossible to do that for more than one project at the same time. And that you're going to kill yourself if you stretch yourself thin and create that momentum on too many projects. And I'm learning that the hard way right now where I was like, okay, I'm going to gamble and I'm going to attach myself to more projects to see what hits. And then it's like, that's not going to work because I'm only passively attached to five projects, right? right? But it's all about, like you were saying, it's about throwing your weight behind the one that you believe in the most and getting that off the ground. And then, yes, you can play the game and have representation and work within certain genres and try to see what else you could get cooking. But it's also about commitment. And I think, yeah, if you're just 
applying to these programs because you want to be chosen, you're not really committed to the art form. And if you're attaching to these films without really doing anything about it, you're not really committed. It's just kind of surface. So ultimately, I, I don't know. I didn't make a mistake the past year, but now I'm like, what do I do now? <laughs> How do I manufacture this? Well, I don't know. I mean, I'd much rather be in your position, like two features under my belt and, you know, yeah, a couple shorts and with all these attachments than to be like somebody who's spent the last whatever, five years or so just trying to get something made and not making it because they didn't get to that high level they wanted. They didn't get, you know, whatever, Hugh Jackman to be in their movie. But if they do get something, you know, they will be... If there, if there is like a compare and despair of the situation, they will be higher than me, right? It's like they'll they'll win big if they do get into that program or if they mm. get that attachment. So right. it may be worth That's it. Interesting. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure if it's worth it because I, I don't even know. Like, I wouldn't like, are you like saying that like filmmakers like us who just go out and make their own movies that they can't make that jump? You know, because I don't know. I'm trying to figure it out. Honestly, I'm I'm like talking, thinking like maybe I'll figure it out at the end of the sentence. And I don't. So I just keep on talking. Well, I feel like the, there's these filmmakers. We haven't had, had them on the show, but they made this movie. OK, well, so the Fear Street person, for example, mm-hmm. like her first film was like an indie feature. And then she got some directing jobs and then she got Fear Street. And it's just like that. That's sort of like the way that I so it was like TV directing. Right. Yeah. TV directing. So yeah. like that, in, uh, how hard is it to get into TV directing? Yes. So hard. So hard. So what helped yeah. her get into TV directing? Yeah. Well, the feature you'd think, you know, but I don't, I don't know. is there a correlation between the TV directing and Fear Street or is the correlation between the fe- the feature and Fear Street? Like who knows, right? It's like, probably the TV. It's probably like she established herself as a valuable commodity, as a right, as a someone who did multiple TV directing jobs entrenched in the system, trustworthy with representation who vetted her and vouched for her. And then maybe they look at the samples. But I think that the core of it is what systemic opportunities have you worked within and mm-hmm. how can people trust you? And that's mm-hmm. why I think it's really hard to get from where we are to like five, ten million dollar projects. Right. Yeah. I think it's it's all like everyone says, it's all the connections, you know, yeah. it's all the people it's that nepotism. you meet in your career. I think some of it's nepotism, but some of it's like, you know, the the rich person you meet at a film festival, you know, yeah. or the the producer who watches your movie randomly somehow and loves it. You know, it's like, I think these are like the random small things that help get you to where you're going. I So I talked to legend of the show, Timothy Plane yesterday, and he talked about, you know, talking to a filmmaker who had gotten like a really big job writing at Pixar. And he asked, and I was, he's, I was like, so how, so, you know, was it useful talking to him about that? And he's like, no, it wasn't. Cause what he said was, I, I submitted a script to a, to a script competition, competition. Somebody at Pixar read it from the script competition and then they hired me. And so it's like a completely random, like not re- replicable situation. And I feel like most situations are like that. Yeah. Like I spent a long time trying to figure out like how to replicate situations and how to like, okay, what is the pathway to, to get where to where I want to go? And then you realize there is none. It doesn't exist. <laughs> There's no so pathway, just, but the, 
Okay, but okay, what if I were to say to you, just like you were fundraising, you when you were fundraising, you wrote down like every single person you ever knew who had money and you went mm-hmm. you, like you said that on a show, right? That like right, right. that's the way to fundraise for you when you're trying to figure out how to put together a small project or medium-sized project or whatever. What if I said to you you do the same thing but for your career? You write down every single person you could ask to shadow on a TV show. You write down every single person that could help get your film viewed by a certain distributor or a sales agent. Like, I just think a lot of people don't view their career in that way. And that's what I'm saying is hustling to get to the nepotism stage is like actually putting together your resources and think, well, what's the next step for me? Not just what's the next movie I'm going to make. Right. Right. Like, how am I going to make it with the best package possible or something? Yeah. 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 I don't know. Tricky stuff. (laughs) Um, This is way better than what I want to talk about. So... (laughs) Yeah, this is this is good stuff. I don't know what this is called, but this was just conversations Talking. about, yeah, trying to make it in the indie film world or make it from what is actually the indie film world to what, you know, the Hollywood Reporter considers the indie film <laughs> that's world. That's right. That's Quote exactly the perfect summary of what that was. <laughs> that's like my dream in life is to be what Hollywood Reporter thinks is an indie filmmaker. Right, right exactly. <laughs> Well, for those of you who are still with us, <laughs> you can always send us a question, comment, or suggestion to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. You can leave us a review on iTunes if you like the show. You could check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at MMIH Podcast, YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. Thanks to the Film Festival Alliance for coming on the show. Thanks to our new editor, Jeff Vrymoot, for doing the editing. Thanks to all of you for listening and talk to y'all next week. I don't know. Do I have anything else interesting to say? Not really. I guess, oh, the film, the alternate. Beep, beep, boop, pop, beep, pop. <laughs>